Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and bailing twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Journalist Bianca Bosker spent 18 months training to taste, smell, and serve wine to discover the secret world of elite sommeliers. From their strict rules, don't pour hosts before guests, don't block the label with your hand, to what really goes on in a Michelin star restaurant. What I found really fascinating and forever changed the way that I eat out at restaurants was the preparation 
that the sommeliers do going into the floor to understand the guests they're serving that evening. They attempt to Google everyone before they come into the restaurant. They keep extensive logs on what you drink, what you do, what you spend. I mean, I think a lot of us walk into the restaurant thinking that we're about to evaluate it that evening. That restaurant, especially at the higher end, is judging you way more than you are judging them. Plus, we discuss sous vide and the pursuit of culinary perfection with Alex I News. And editorial director J.M. Hirsch tells us about his trip to Cambodia, where he learned how to cook, not just seasoned with peppercorns. But first, I visit Wolf's Fish, a wholesale market in Boston, to meet Bala Paiva. Bala grew up in Brazil as a soccer star, but came to the States after an injury where he found unexpected fame in cutting fish. His popular Instagram account features Bala filleting a 100-pound fish in just minutes. Okay, so you're a uh, major league fish cutter. Let me put it that way. What are we going to do today? So uh, after I scale the fish, I'm going to do a quick wash. Watch out. So first I go right here on the collar. Do a cut here. Bones out. So we go here. Sides out. Okay, I'm impressed. Don't leave any meat on here. Take the head off. That's it. That's amazing. So you're not wasting any meat here? Nothing. So how long would it take someone to do what you just did and do it well? Does it take months to get to the point you can make just a few cuts and get it off cleanly? I've been doing that for like 15 years, every day. Okay, I'm cold. Uh, let's head to the office, which is All warmer, right, and warm. sit down and talk. Cool. So now we're up at the office at Wolf's Fish. It's 40 degrees warmer, which is a good thing. Got a cup of tea. So let, let's start uh, at the beginning. You were a professional soccer player. You're 17 years old. Did that for a few years. Injury sort of ended that career. So what's it like being a 17-year-old soccer star in Brazil? That must be just a strange experience. It was, was everything for me. It was my life. You know, I stopped school to play soccer. Everybody in Brazil want to be a professional soccer player, and I was right there. And then you transitioned to something totally different, as they say. Yeah, uh, after I got an I got injury in soccer, I did, uh, it was really devastating to me. So my dad sent me to, uh, with some friends to live in Connecticut for a couple months to clear my mind. So then uh, I ended up like finding a job at a seafood restaurant. That's where everything started. Now you are, you know, a world-class <laughs> fish cutter. So you, you get in really early in the morning, I would assume. What, what time do you get in? Usually 3 o'clock in the morning. So how do you figure out whether you want to buy a fish? Because you're selling to the top restaurants. Oh, it's all about the freshness. Take a little bit piece of the tail cut. And I will check the color, the, the texture. So how do you do a tail cut? Is that a uh, It's a little slice? piece from the tail, as little slice, like that thick, like so less than an inch. So just half an inch thick. So by that tail, I can check everything, like the texture, um, the, the color, the, okay. it's really fresh. You can see still bloody. Yeah. And, and, and the texture, you're looking for something? Not too fat and not too lean. It's all about the taste of the chef, the way how they like it. So let's say tomorrow you said to me, okay, Meet you at 3.30 in the shop, in the cutting room. What are, what are the really 
beginner rookie mistakes? When I was learning to cut fish, uh, my brother would say, hey, be careful, don't, don't go too hard with the chainsaw. Because you, you were afraid to cut the fish wrong. You make a lot of sort of circular yeah, cuts, like, you keep so cutting and cutting you, you, and cutting. You take the fish, right. it's all like a wave, like, right. you know, like, oh, wait a minute. The professional, they, they cut right through, you can make... It's one can, long, smooth cut. One long, smooth cut, make sure the blade is really sharp, and that's it. So your soccer career ended a long time ago. So do you ever watch the World Cup anymore? Or are you you're just done with soccer? Or is well, that something um, that you, you still like? I, I could say it's on the blood. But uh, I was passionate for soccer, but the passion's over. I got another passion now. You still eat fish at home? Oh, yeah, every I'm day. I'm just wondering if you're, like, you're a every steak day. guy now. Every, you're nah, sick of fish. Every single day. Every single home. day I'll eat home fish. Bala, thank you. Now I know what... A little bit more about cutting up fish, <laughs> but I think you know a lot more than I do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. It was my pleasure to have you here. That was Bala Paiva, Master Fish Cutter and the Director of Product Quality at the wholesale fish market, Wolf's Fish. Milstia Radio is available anytime, anywhere as a podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will try to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you doing? I'm good, Chris, but you know, I have a burning question for you. About burning your dinner? No, no, no. I want to know, what is your favorite cocktail? Oh, it's the old-fashioned. Ah, that was simple. Oh, no, that that was simple. No, I, I made a lot of them. I've gone through like Do 10 Do we have one every night? Not every night, but many nights. Mm. Um, there's a lot of secrets mm-hmm. to this. I'll just give them to you quickly. Okay. Shaken with ice. Okay. Because you really want to chill it down. Okay. I use sort of unrefined sugar cubes, yep. which I think are much better than simple syrup, which I don't like. And then I've tried maybe 20 different kinds of bitters. I've tried chocolate bitters. I've tried cardamom bitters. I've tried, I use a combination of regular bitters and cardamom bitters in it. And two ounces of bourbon to one or two small cubes of sugar, a little bit of water because I find diluting the alcohol content a little bit is helpful, and then bitters, and shake it and then strain it. And then the ice cubes have to be just the right size. Wow. But besides I, that, I really don't care how you I, make it. I don't think you care at all. I opened the floodgates. Woo! Uh, and the other thing you can make is a whiskey sour, which turns out to be two ounces of bourbon, a third of an ounce of lemon juice, and half the amount of simple syrup, and that's uh, for the summer version. Okay, got it. That's all it. right. That's all right. Well, do we have any time left for questions? No, I think that's now it for this. After that? Thank you for tuning in to okay, Milk Street Radio. Let's take a question. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Elsa. Hi, Elsa. Where are you calling from? I'm from Sharon, Vermont. I'm going to like this call right away. <laughs> How can we help you? For the past few years, I've entered cookies into the Tunbridge World's Fair. Um, King Arthur Flower Contest. Uh-huh. For you. And for all three years, I have won a ribbon. And I want to keep my streak up this time around and want my flavors to be original, but not too exotic in order to keep it familiar. So tell us about the cookies you won ribbons for. What did you make? We're given a simple drop cookie recipe and are allowed slash like encouraged to add our own flavors and ideas to it. And I've added different kinds of chocolate and nuts and dried fruit into them. 
in the past. Well, one thing you might do is maple candy some nuts. That's obviously appropriate for the flavoring. If you candy them in a skillet, in other words, give them a sugar coating, and then maybe chop them up and put them into the cookie and maybe put one, you know, half walnut or whatever on top. That would be cool. You know, a maple butter of some kind as a sort of a frosting. I don't know if you're allowed to do that. would be great. Butternuts are a very Vermont thing as well. Mm -hmm. Candying nuts with maple syrup would be really interesting. If it doesn't have to be Vermont, if you want to go crazy, there are all those wonderful spices that people in Vermont have never used before, (laughs) including me. You know, lots of cookies around the world use turmeric, for example, some really interesting stuff. You could add that. You can put an herb or something a little savory into a cookie to sort of balance the sugar. But I, I think candying nuts using maple sugar, probably, that would be a great idea. It's something everyone would like. What tends to win? Yeah, that's Did a good they, one. Are they looking for familiar things or the sort of outliers tend to win, the, the stranger combinations? I would say a bit more traditional, which yeah. is why I don't want to go too exotic yeah. with my flavoring. You know, another thing you might want to think about is taking a, a combination that we all know is tried and true, like picnic s'mores or some other combo that we all love in desserts, and try to incorporate that somehow into your That's cookie. That's a good idea. There's something you might try, Stella Park's cookbook, Brave Tart. Sorry. Oh, Brave Tart, Brave Tart. yes, Tart. wonderful. Brave Tart, she has a lot of great classic American like cookies and things with the recipes that do them at home. So I would definitely get a copy of that book. Because That's a good book she's for you a to terrific have anyway. baker. Yeah. She's redone some of the like you can make fig newtons yourself, but you should look at that because she has tons of really good ideas for things that are really classically American, which is where you want to be here, not my stupid turmeric cookie idea. <laughs> Buy Brave Tart. That's a really good idea. And for Elsa, you. I hope you take some of these ideas, but will you also let us know how you do? Get back to us. Okay. Thanks so much for calling. Yes. Great to talk Thanks, to you. Thanks, Elsa. Really yeah. good luck for uh, yeah. making four We're years in for a row. You. Yeah. Take care, Elsa. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pamela Freeland. Hi, Pamela. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Venice, Florida. How can we help you today? I love to cook. I have a well-stocked kitchen, and I was making a yeast bread recently, and I went to make it, and I have three different loaf pans. I have a glass pan, a metal pan, and a dark metal, I suppose, like a nonstick pan. What I'm wondering is, do I need all three loaf pans, or if I get down to one, which one should I keep? The lighter metal one would be my choice. The trouble with dark metal is it tends to darken the crust. And glass is not the best conductor of heat. It's good for pies, because then you can see when the pie is cooked through. But my choice absolutely would be, you said you do have a lighter metal one? I do, yes. That would be the one that I would pick. That would be the one to keep? That's what I say. Chris? I don't care. (laughs) I'm just, let me explain my answer. You can adjust. Well, first of all, I think gold touch or something. I like in between light and dark is the one I have, which I like a lot. But you're right, a darker pan, the metal will retain more heat. But you can adjust the oven temperature for that. I mean, you can certainly bake in a darker pan. But overall, I think a lighter pan is probably the easiest and you're unlikely to have problems with that. But you can use all of them. I've used Pyrex for years, and it works. So how much would you reduce yeah. the temperature if you used it? For a darker pan, 25 degrees. And for the glass pan, what would you do? They always talk about reducing the temperature. I don't bother reducing it at all. 
I think it retains heat well, but I've never found it to be a big difference. But a dark pan, the risk you get is obviously over browning the outside. Right. So you might reduce the oven a little bit. But yeah, a lighter pan in general is probably the best. And make sure it's heavy duty. I like something that's a little heavier. But I think Sarah's advice is pretty good. All right. Okay. There we go. Perfect. I had one other real quick one. Sure. Go ahead. I have the same thing with sheet pans. I have a dark, a nonstick sheet pan. I have uh, a cookie sheet pan. I've got a air cushioned one. And then I've got my favorite is just a light metal one. Is there a preference in sheet pans? Yeah. Don't use a sheet pan. Use a half baking sheet, which is rimmed. I have like six or seven of those and they're very heavy okay. duty and they cost 12 bucks each. I use them for roasting chicken. I use them for cookies. I use them for anything and everything. And I've tried the cushion air ones, the insulated ones. They're, and I, They don't I don't think the they cookies through. Yeah. I'm not a fan either. Cookies end up mushy. Yeah, I thought I would be a fan, but I, I wasn't, so. It sounds like you're a serious baker. Well, I'm a serious cook. I'm actually back in culinary school at age 70. Really? What? I am. Good for you. What's the name of the school? I'm at Kaiser University in uh, Florida in their culinary program. I'm actually not working on a degree. I'm taking all their cooking and baking classes. And uh, what I'd really like to do is teach children to cook. That's a great plan. Good for you. Good for you. That's really great. Wow. You're an inspiration. (laughs) Well, thank you for calling. Well, thank you. Yeah, and good luck with that. That's exciting. Yes. Oh, it is. Thanks so much. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question or need to resolve a culinary debate, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ishmael Hernandez from San Antonio, Texas. How can we help you? I have a question about spatulas. Okay. The problem I have is cooking certain foods sometimes. I am not able to get all the food on the spatula at once, say like I'm cooking pancakes or right. eggs over easy. Um, and it's not like it's stuck to the skillet or anything else, but uh, am I using the spatula correctly? Is there a correct protocol to use those, or should I get one of the bigger ones like you see at the uh, the restaurants use, that the chefs would use or something? Are you cooking on a griddle or in a skillet? Sometimes a griddle, mostly the skillet. Well, in the griddle, you can use anything you want because you've got the room. But in a skillet, I think the trick is... You mentioned not being able to flip the food, maybe because the spatula is too narrow. But the bigger problem is getting in and flipping just one pancake at a time, not two, or flipping one of the eggs and not two. I like thin-edged spatulas. They're sometimes called fish spatulas. Mm -hmm. They have very thin edges, and they're also angled in such a way where you can sort of vertically come down and then under the food instead of having to come in horizontally, which I think is important. And they come in different widths, and they also come with a silicon edge if you have a nonstick skillet. So a a thin-edge fish spatula is what I use as much as possible, especially when you have a crowded skillet and it's about precision. That's really the question is just to flip over what you want, get it flipped, and then so it flips properly and put back in the right place. I mean, Sarah, do you have something? I agree. I love, I think the one that I have currently is made by Lampson. Mm -hmm. The best thing about them is that they're flexible, so you can sort of really, and they're very thin, so you can really slide under whatever it is you're doing. And I agree with Chris. They're sort of a medium width. I imagine you can get them thicker or thinner, but 
they work for everything. I use them for everything. Absolutely. Yeah, everything. I find the really big classic spatula to be too clumsy yeah. and too wide inflexible. and too heavy. Inflexible. You need it to be flexible. I don't know anybody who's inflexible. Do you, Sarah? No, I can't okay. imagine anybody, particularly anybody <laughs> in this room. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not, don't call me a fish spatula. Yeah, so, uh, and they only cost, you know, 10 or 20 yeah, bucks. Yeah, so they're not terrible. That's what I would go with. Yeah, me too. Okay, not too bad. All, All right. right. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Palm Harbor, Florida. What can we help you with today? Thank you so much for taking my call. I just admire you both so much. And I'm just really grateful that you all do this to give us the opportunity to ask these questions. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having a question. Yeah, my question has to do with garlic. You know, I've always been told that you're supposed to never cook garlic at a high heat so you don't burn it and get a bitter taste. Yet I come across so many recipes. Off the top of my head, there's like a certain sheet pan recipe where they're telling you to mix everything with garlic and then you're blasting it at a high heat in the oven. And I'm just wondering, is there a way to cook garlic at a higher heat without it getting bitter? Well, let me ask you a question. In this particular recipe, was the garlic whole mm-hmm. whole cloves? Was it minced? Was it sliced? What no, was it? it's minced. Oh. Minced. Oh, doesn't sound that awful. doesn't sound like a good idea. I agree with your yeah. gut. What was it tossed with? What protein? Like chicken or probably chicken. I would guess it would be chicken. That's normally what it is on that type of recipe. That when I cook it, yeah. Well, and then I would think the garlic would burn by the time the chicken was done. I mean, if you'd said whole cloves and let's say they were sort of tucked underneath the chicken or something, probably they would uh-huh. have survived the ordeal. But generally, I don't cook garlic at a high heat. I'm with you. I usually start it. You know, sheet pan. You can't help it. Or I might add it later to the sheet pan. You know, you can Uh add things to the sheet pan in stages. There's no, you know, rule that you have to put it all in at once, all the vegetables, all the meat. Right. Now, we have a recipe. We call it tray-baked chicken. It's a name we got from Nigella Lawson. You put chicken parts on a baking tray and uh, put garlic whole cloves, peeled whole cloves in the middle with some herbs and stuff. And you can roast it along with a chicken. It won't burn. But it's like roasting a whole head of garlic. It'll get a nice buttery, creamy You leave taste. it in the skin or take it out of the skin? It's totally peeled close. Okay. It's not a whole head. Mm. And then when you take okay. the chicken off, you add some water to the pan, a few herbs, lemon juice, and you can actually whisk it on the pan with the chicken juices, and it makes a wonderful sauce. So as mm. long as the clove is whole, you're okay. But once you mince okay. it, you're absolutely right. You do not want to use high heat. In general... High heat and garlic's a bad idea. Yeah, right. I agree. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's a great idea. That sounds delicious, that sauce with the garlic and the lemon and so forth. I'll have to try that and just keep my garlic whole. Yeah, and, and the great thing is as those juices exude from the chicken as you bake it, that's the basis of your sauce and all can be done in the sheet pan. It's simple and it's great. All righty. Okay, well, great. Well, Sandy, thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care, Sandy. Okay, Bye. bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, we discover the secret world of wine service with journalist Bianca Bosker. That in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. 
Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Journalist Bianca Bosker didn't think much about wine until she discovered a hidden universe of elite wine service with its own rules and idiosyncrasies. She went on to spend 18 months investigating this world and also training to become a certified sommelier. In her book, Cork Dork, Bosker recounts her journey from shadowing sommeliers at Michelin star institutions to her own restaurant gigs to her stint as a guest judge at a master sommelier competition. Bianca, how are you? I'm doing very well. How about you? Good. So uh, let's start with the Super Bowl of wine tastings or sommelier competitions. It's called Top Somme. You went to it. Where is it held? And what is the competition all about? So the competition, um, at least when I was there, was held in California wine country. And it was a pretty excruciating test of the sommelier's skills. There was a theory section, so being tested on all sorts of insane wine minutia, a blind tasting section, and then a test of service, which basically involved judges being the most obnoxious guests they possibly could be to test the sommelier's (laughs) mettle. People do this partially for fun, but more because for top sommeliers, these exams are a way to prove themselves within the industry and also prepare for the kind of great ultimate title of the sommelier world, which is the Court of Master Sommeliers Master Sommelier Exam. So here's a, a question I've had. In this section where you're trying to identify wine, uh, one of the people you were with says, quote, This is a Merlot-dominated blend from the right bank of the Bordeaux from the village of Saint-Emilion. And then it turns out it was from Medoc, about 20 miles away on the other side of the river. So uh, did you come away thinking that actually these people are very good at identifying wines in a blind tasting or that it's, well, it's random? They're very good at identifying wines in a blind tasting, which is not to say that they always get it right. I mean... Let's step back for a minute and talk about just how challenging blind tasting is. Imagine that you're sat down in front of, let's say, four glasses of wine, and now your job is in four minutes per glass to figure out what grape was this made with, how was it made, what year was it made, and where was it made, not like country, but think some tiny plot of land the size of Central Park, right? And what's made it particularly difficult about that is that in order to be good at this, first of all, you have to trust senses that we're not used to trusting, right? Taste and smell. I mean, humans themselves, these delicate sensory ecosystems, if you will. And so for a sommelier, this task can be thrown off by something as simple as maybe a half hour less sleep that they got the night before as their nose a little dry from the plane. The altitude, people talk about the weather changing their ability to get the aromas in the wine. Not to mention stress, right? These people are here. Their reputations are on the line. Um, It's an incredibly stressful experience to go under. And all of that can really throw things out of line. Um, Let's get to the next part of the top sum test where you actually are serving wine to a table and the table is made up of judges trying to make it as difficult as possible to test the patience and social skills of the sommeliers. 
So yes, essentially the sommeliers for the service portion of this competition have a very limited time window in which they have to complete a certain number of tasks for a table and move between different tables. And so, you know, imagine these guests are chatty, they're curious, they're annoying, you know, they're asking all sorts of detailed questions about where did this wine come from? Who made it? What would you recommend? You know, it's really, uh, there's a judge that, you know, to try and throw people off their game would essentially dig his finger into his nose and just pick his nose throughout the service. Um, It's uh, really, you know, because the thing is about service and the role of sommeliers in the restaurant is it's not just about the mechanics of executing certain tasks, right? It is also about the theater of dining. It's about this illusion of elegance, of ease, of fluidity. And all of that is what these judges are really challenging to see that when all, when like when really hits the fan, can you still beautifully decant and pour that old Bordeaux? Well, you, a quote from your book, uh, this is... Uh, you're following someone called Morgan. Uh, when he poured a taste of Madeira for the master sommelier at my table, a splash of wine hit the rim of the glass. The entire table grew silent, and not a single person, Morgan included, breathed <laughs> as we watched the fat, juicy brown droplet roll as if in slow motion of the outside of the rim along the glass's side and down the stem. So a drop of wine that escapes the bowl of the glass is a disaster. Yeah, I think I described it as a turd on a wedding dress. I mean, it's that (laughs) awkward and ugly and bad. I mean, it was one of the more painful things I've ever seen happen in the wine world. And and there's lots of rules here that uh, the average person is not aware of. You know, don't pour men before women. Don't pour hosts before guests. Don't block the label with your hand. So there's, there's a whole underworld of rules and regulations around wine service. Absolutely. Don't touch yourself. Don't touch the table. Don't touch the guests. Don't touch the bowl of the wine glass and leave your nasty fingerprints all over it. And I will say that initially, none of these made sense to me. I mean, I was in the process of mastering these so that I could actually take the Court of Sommeliers certified sommelier exam. And I didn't get it. I mean, I really was like, does it matter if I'm pouring you open-handed versus backhanded? Does clockwise versus counterclockwise really make a difference? And what I found is that in some cases, I think that these rules do exist for practical reasons, you know, like keeping your thumb on a champagne cork. It's true. I mean, champagne corks can erupt at 20 to 30 miles per hour. They can be a bit of a loaded weapon. And then there are other ones that are less practical and more symbolic, right, where it is about more the the app atmosphere that you're creating. It's about the sort of sense that you're conveying to the diner. And I think that that is no less important. You know, I think that even if you as a diner don't know that, you know, your server should pour that wine open-handed, meaning that their palm is facing you as in the back of their hand, you feel that extra effort, that care as they do so. So let's go into the world of restaurants where you spend some time. Um, It per se you said that they were known for bringing in ballet dancers to teach the staff how to move, or Jean-Georges hands out guidelines on lipstick color, jewelry style, nail color, etc. No fragrance or strong-smelling shampoos. What are some of the inside rules and tricks these restaurants uh, use when training and presenting their staff? I mean, you sort of named it, but I think that what I found 
really fascinating and forever changed the way that I eat out at restaurants was the preparation that the sommeliers do going into the floor, not only about their personal appearance and odor, but to understand the guests they're serving that evening. I mean, I think a lot of us walk into the restaurant thinking that we're about to evaluate it that evening. That restaurant, especially at the higher end, is judging you way more than you are judging them. So, So, for example, if you're a really attractive couple, you get a better table? Potentially. I was, so I did a stage at a two Michelin star restaurant where the maitre d' described to me having to, quote unquote, dress the room. And so, yeah, there was an absolutely stunning couple. You know, he was scruffy in his leather jacket. She was this tall, thin blonde. And, you know, he really wanted to put them in a, in a very central table to, you know, I guess, and make them kind of this decoration, part of the experience, part of the atmosphere, part of, again, the theater of fine dining. You know, if you were a guest at these higher-end restaurants, they attempt to Google everyone before they come into the restaurant. They keep extensive logs on what you drink, what you do, what you spend. Um, You could be labeled a wine PX, which is short for personne extraordinaire. If you spend a whole lot of money, you might be a PPX, which is personne particulièrement extraordinaire. You could be a SOE, which is short for sense of entitlement. Or if you throw temper tantrums, you might be labeled an HWC, which means handle with care. Um, And there's a whole shorthand Hmm. that essentially is logged and then when the table is seated, printed out for the servers, the sommeliers, the captains to um, actually understand how to treat that guest. So what what about advice for people listening to the show about ordering wine at a restaurant? Most people, and I include myself in this, when they go to a restaurant, they really have no idea what they're doing. And the reason is there's so many things to know. Vintage, you know, content and place of origin, left bank, right bank. It's just too much information. So how how do you bridge that gap? Because for most people, you know, it's like, I, I don't know art, but I know what I like. I don't know wine, but I know what I like. I would argue that if you're starting with memorizing grape varieties and aging laws, you're starting from the wrong place. I think that in order to have a really healthy, empowered relationship with wine, you need to back up and start with the senses. You know, think about smelling a wine. I know that when I started, I could stick my nose into a glass of wine and on a really good day tell you that I was smelling wine. These sommeliers, you know, they could stick their nose into the glass and they can smell peach and charcoal and graphite. And some of that is BS, but some of it isn't. And some of it comes from just having built these sense memories, from basically taking the time to learn in the same way we learn the color green or blue, what does a strawberry smell like? What does cracked black pepper smell like? And any of us can do that, right? I remember training also with a master perfumer who said to describe the smell of everything that I sniff in the course of a day, starting with my shampoo in the morning and my you know, mouthwash at night. So that would be my first recommendation. Before you start knowing where the Loire is versus Burgundy, what does a raspberry smell like? Internalize that. And the second thing is, I think, understanding the way that tastes really function on your tongue. I mean, what does acid feel like? You know, how much does that make you drool? Do, do you think a $500 bottle of wine can ever be worth $500? It just, or, or is this mythology? Definitely, you know, I mean... Look, a $500 bottle of wine is not 50 times better than a $10 bottle of wine. I mean, there's no, like, direct math that you can make. I do think that 
$5 buys you a lot more between 10 and 15 and 15 and 20 than it does, obviously, between 450 and 455 You know, I think that beyond a certain point, I think when you get beyond three figures, the price is very much about branding and very much about supply and demand. So, so, so what, what do you buy? I mean, if, if you go out to dinner, is there a sweet spot for you because you know a lot about wine? Yeah, my I mean, my approach is really... Look, I think that there are some wines where you're paying for the brand, right? Like when I go out to eat, I often buy wines from Sicily. I love reds and whites from Sicily. Yeah, me too. And in general, like you can get a much better value for that because it's a little bit more of an unknown quantity than, say, Tuscany or, you know, wines from Barolo. It's so interesting you say that because my I, I came to that conclusion a few years ago with a friend of mine who's in the wine business. And for 20 bucks, you can buy terrific wines from Sicily. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I learned when I was um, working as a seller rat when I first started was sort of how a by-the-glass wine list is put together. Um, a lot of by-the-glass wine lists have what sommeliers call gimme wines. The sort of name brand, your California Chardonnays, your New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, your California Cabs, that people know, they recognize, and they look at them, they see them, and they say, give it to me, I don't care how much they cost. But in general, what I think is on wine lists, if, if you want to find a good value and drink well, buy the wine that you've never heard of from the region you can't pronounce and the grape you don't know, because oftentimes it's there because someone really loved it. (laughs) So you're a journalist. You went down the rabbit hole of sommeliers and wine. Was this something that always appealed to you (laughs) or you just thought it was a good story? Wine was uh, well. Let's just say, sounds like you know you know a good deal about wine. Um, so maybe you spent your Saturday nights picking out wines from Burgundy versus Beaujolais, but I spent mine picking out wines from a bottle versus a box. Didn't really know the difference. I thought maybe there was one, and I didn't really care until I discovered this world of cork dorks. And so what really drew me in was, I mean, first of all, I've always been obsessed with obsession. And if you've ever sat down next to, you know, at a dinner party next to someone who loves wine, you know that they are maniacs, right? Completely obsessed. Um, And I was also intrigued by you know, the sensory abilities. Like I at the time was working as the tech editor at the Huffington Post. And I felt like my life was one of sensory deprivation, where theirs was this world of sensory cultivation. And I wanted to know what I was missing. You know, why wine? Why did people spend all this time and money and energy on it? And so, yeah, I quit my job and started training to become a sommelier. And I didn't know that I would fall in love with it. I didn't know that I would become obsessed by the end. Um, But as you can probably tell, I certainly have become so. Bianca, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. Her book is called Cork Dork, a wine-fueled adventure among the obsessive sommeliers, big bottle hunters, and rogue scientists who taught me to live for taste. Magicians, much like sommeliers, are a good example of the art of deception in the service of entertainment. Hard work that allows one to present a reality that is indistinguishable from magic. Ricky Jay, the consummate card shark, could throw playing cards into watermelons or beat you at poker even after he allowed you to switch cards with him. Jay, just like restaurants, outwardly projected a sense of engaging reality. 
while shielding the customer from the chaos and the manipulation that actually goes on behind the scenes. And that's why sommeliers are, in fact, magicians. They understand that the art of fine dining is all about appearances. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, stir-fried black pepper chicken with green beans. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You went to Cambodia recently, your I most far-flung trip to date, and you came back and all you could talk about were peppercorns. Yeah. So could you please explain <laughs> why you went 10,000 miles and came back and talked about peppercorns? So I got to tell you, like, pepper does not interest me in the slightest. You know, I, like most people, I consider it salt's kind of obligatory plus one on the table. You throw it on because you are in the habit of throwing it on, and that's about it. Well, in Cambodia, they treat it far differently. In Cambodia, black pepper isn't just a seasoning that you use at the table. It's a seasoning that you cook with, and you cook with it copiously. And it doesn't just have a flavor and an aroma, which we're familiar with, but it has a texture because they never grind it really finely. They grind it exceedingly coarsely. Hmm. And so it has a real presence in every dish. And I'm telling you, they put it like by the tablespoon into each dish per serving. I was blown away. And of course, my first thought was, well, this is going to be inedible. And it wasn't. It's really quite balanced. And the pepper, unlike chili peppers, which have kind of a lingering heat, black peppercorns actually have more of a fiery pop. And it's very, it doesn't persist in your mouth. And so you can tolerate it a lot better. I was really surprised by how much I loved it. So are these peppercorns exactly the same, like telecherry, something we would have here? Or is part of the secret of the recipe, it's different pepper? Well, if you ask Cambodians, of course, they're going to tell you that only the peppercorns grown in the Kampot region of Cambodia are the true, the best, and so on and so forth. But we use you know, conventional peppercorns here when we were replicating the dishes, and they worked just fine. I mean, the Kampot peppercorns are lovely and delicious, but... So I assume that there's something in this dish, whatever it is, other than peppercorns? There are. So we were introduced to a dish called Kampot chicken, and this is basically a stir-fry where you're combining chicken and carrots and green beans with three tablespoons of coarsely crushed black pepper. And it's a very simple stir-fry. It comes together very quickly. We toast the peppercorns in a dry skillet to kind of bring out some more of their nuance, some more of their flavor, and deepen it a bit. And we're balancing all that pepper with some lime juice, which is, by the way, a very classic Cambodian combination, is lime juice and black pepper. And, and you're throwing it together. It's on the table in 30 minutes. It's very simple. So just tell me one more time. Three tablespoons of Three black pepper is not too much. It's just say not that too much. Repeat after me. <laughs> it's so. not too much. And again, because you know, you're keeping it really coarse and there's so much of it, it actually almost adds like a breadcrumb consistency to the dish. It adds that texture as well as the flavor and the aroma. It really surprised me how good it was. I'm going to have to trust you. <laughs> so, Jam, you went to Cambodia, came back with Cambodian black pepper chicken with green beans with three tablespoons of peppercorns. Sounds like a must try. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You can find this recipe and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we discuss the past, present, and future of sous vide with Alex Inews. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and bailing twine, of course, for most jobs. 
When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Most Your Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Martha, and my tip is that old or overripe bananas can be made into banana jam. The method is the same as for any jam. You chop up the fruit, cook it, pour it into jars. You can add other ingredients like raisins or spices, and a pinch of salt enhances flavors, but you shouldn't need to add any more sugar. So this is good um, with yogurt, on ice cream, and crepes, on pancakes, with peanut butter, on sandwiches, or you can just spoon it out of the jar. Thank you. Bye. If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. 
Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Chris? I'm good. What's going on in uh, Paris this week? Uh, so this week, I want to take you guys on a trip down memory lane. <laughs> so that, that expression might be a bit old-fashioned, but uh, I, I just want to remember a moment 15 years ago when I, I was young and foolish, but already into food. So back then, I made an experiment in my kitchen uh, because I had heard rumors about a high-tech yet low-temp cooking technique that promised to deliver perfectly cooked steaks every Time. Now, the problem was, it was only used by a handful of wealthy Michelin star chefs and passionate food geeks at that time. Still, I wanted to give it a try myself, so I took a primitive yet very effective approach to what you guys might have identified as sous vide. So oh, I used no. it. Oh, oh really? yes, yes. Are we going to yes. have to do sous vide now? <laughs> yes, yes, okay. we do. Yes, okay. we do. So, so back then, I used a cheap rice cooker on a keep warm mode. I hooked uh-huh. it to a switch and I placed a basic, uh, you know, random thermometer inside. Uh-huh. I then shoved the steak inside a plastic bag, sucked out the air and placed the whole thing inside. And basically for about an hour, every time I would see the temperature going above 122 degrees Fahrenheit, that's my medium rare, I would right. flick that switch off and on just to bring it down and then turn it back on. By doing so, I was maintaining, you know, sort of a stable temperature and, and also putting the, the, the life of my appliance at risk for sure. Uh, in the end, in the end, long story short, I got myself a perfectly cooked steak, extremely tender and pinkish red all the way through inside. That was my first encounter with sous vide, and that genuinely blew my mind. Now, now did, 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 did you sear the steak afterwards or, or not? Yeah, yeah. Now, yes, I did sear the steak, but, but, but it was just the first time for me to, to experience such perfection. Now, fast forward to today, 15 years later. Sous vide is no longer complicated or reserved for pioneers. I mean, many cooks, they use it. It's easy, it's available, it's inexpensive. From Michelin star chef dealing with $1,000 complicated, unavailable to the public equipment, you can now buy a super legit immersion circulator, that's the nickname of sous vide, for under 80 bucks. Most of them interact with smartphone. Uh, an app is taking care of the temperature for you. You don't have to do anything no more. Plug it in, start, and wait for perfection to be delivered. So I'm not sure exactly what's your opinion on sous vide, Chris. I, I hate it. You hate it? <laughs> I just absolutely hate it. You know why Tell, I hate it? I hate it because me. when I cook, I want to cook. I, I want to smell the food. I want to mess around with the food. I want to add I stuff understand. to the food. And I so you understand. put it in a plastic bag and you go watch uh, your iPhone for an hour. I mean, come on. That's, no, that's but, not... no, but, but, but listen, I love cooking as well. I love touching the food. But I'm also the leader of, of, of an online community of home cooks who are scared and terrified sometimes by the cooking process. The kitchen is daunting to them. And I think this appliance in its defense is going to bring loads of people in the kitchen, people who were too afraid of ruining expensive cuts of meat or delicate fillets of fish. And for that, I think it's good. Think of your uncle. Your neighbors, your mom, all these guys can now perfectly cook a steak every time. Now, 
I, I will just slightly go in your direction. I hope so, because I'm, I'm starting to lose faith <laughs> in the French, modern French view of the world. <laughs> Please don't. Now let's just fast forward to the future. 10 years or 15 years from now, this appliance has been widely accepted. Sous vide is now as available as microwave oven. Every household has one. It's not even cool anymore. How can you cook if you don't have a sous vide? You, you just eat cold salad. Now, since sous vide produces nothing short of perfection, remember, uh, we can now assume that at this age, all steaks will be created equal or, or, or just cooked perfect. Now the question is, what happens to your brain when all you have ever known in your life is perfection? Excellent question. I think the word perfection itself becomes meaningless. Steaks are not perfect anymore. What makes it perfect by definition is the existence of non-perfect steaks. There are no risks anymore, no surprises. In this future, I think we might have become a bunch of harmless sociopaths. Harmless. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I had no idea we were going to go from sous vide to sociopaths. Uh, yeah, yeah but, uh, but, but, but obviously, obviously. Harmless mainly because we don't have teeth no more. The meat is so tender, we don't need them. Now, usually, when cooking something sous vide, you sear the food afterwards. You say so yourself in, in the beginning, just to give it a, 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 you know, a slight amount of texture at least. But you know what? In this future, since we are not excited anymore, we just get it out of the bag. It's tender, and we eat it like this, soft and flaccid. And that's it. We basically killed the steak. We killed yeah. the emotion. Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I am not against sous vide. I don't want to be that guy, you know, the, the guy with, with, with a thing on his head and just saying, the apocalypse is upon us. You mean, you, mean you, you don't want to be me. <laughs> In essence. Exactly. I don't want to be you. Right. I, think sous, I, I think sous vide still is a great option, especially if it allows you to spend more time with the ones you love. If it brings you in the kitchen, if it gets the fear out of you, that's a great appliance in this case. But if you only use sous vide in the pursuit of the ubiquitous and, and vastly overrated perfection these days, I don't know. I think we should work on, on acceptance more than perfection instead. Cooking is not about perfection. It's about cooking. Yeah, for sure. And, and you don't know exactly what you're going to turn out every time. It, it, it's like living in a perf in a world with perfect weather every day. <laughs> it, it's why I don't live in San Diego. I like yeah. bad weather, right? It's part of life. It yeah. makes sense, and that's why I chose to live in Paris. I love the thrill of waking up in the morning and, and, and just right. not knowing if I need my boots or, or, or my flip-flops. So we, we both think sous vide can be useful in the kitchen as a tool, but cooking should represent the human condition and the human condition has nothing to do with perfection. For, for as, sure. far, that, as far as I know. That's, that's the thing that I remember every morning when I look at myself in the, in the mirror. Yeah, me, yeah, well, I've been looking at myself in the mirror long, longer than you have. Uh, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, the culinary arts and perfection, is that a misguided goal? And I think we both agree. Thank you. Thank you. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. 
Sous vide is just the latest bit of technology to invade our kitchens. The pressure cooker, the crock pot, the instant pot. But I would ask whether fix it and forget it represents the very best cooking has to offer. In Oaxaca, for example, pressure cookers are used to cook tough meat before the dish is finished in a sauce on top of the stove in a skillet. The sounds and smells of cooking are really essential to what makes cooking pleasurable. You know, convenience always comes at a price. That's it for today. If you tuned in late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, of course, for listening. Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubup Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.